Welcome to the Faith, Church and Disability podcast. I'm Geraldine, a trustee on the CBM New Zealand Board. At Christian Blind Mission, because we fight to end the cycle of poverty and disability, we're glad to be teaming up with the Baptist NZ Podcast Network to produce this podcast series. Find us online at cbmnz.org.nz and baptist.nz slash podcasts. We hope you find this episode inspiring. Hi, I'm Murray Sheard. I'm the CEO of CBM, Christian Blind Mission. CBM is a disability inclusion charity working with and accountable to people with disabilities in the world's poorest places. Uh, We draw on 110 years of experience to fight poverty and exclusion, and we work with the most marginalized in society to try to break the cycle of poverty and disability that's experienced by so many people uh, living in poorer countries. Globally, at least 15% of people have a disability, and in countries where CBM works, a child with a disability might mean no schooling. A, A woman with a disability is more likely to be sexually abused. Women and men with disabilities often cannot find jobs. There's uh, a whole lot of disadvantage that gets piled on top of disability. And CBM is passionate about trying to break that cycle. And we are focused very much on overseas, but I of course live here in New Zealand and I'm really delighted to be able to talk with some Kiwis with experience of, of disabilities. And this morning I have Olivia Shevas here Welcome, Olivia. Thank you. It's really great to uh, have you here. And I'm just going to throw to you to introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about your story. Cool. So I was born and raised in Tamaki Makoto in New Zealand. I have a Chinese Malaysian mum and a Kiwi dad. And I was also born with a disability called muscular dystrophy. So I guess um, with my background of being mixed race and disability, I yeah, understand a lot of the barriers and discrimination that people face in New Zealand. So I use a wheelchair as a result of my disability and I use that to get around. I have a modified car which helps me get on the road. I am a journalist and a storyteller um, and I'm really passionate about that and in my job I focus on telling stories about disabled people. So I do that through print journalism and digital journalism, and I've also had a podcast as well called What's Wrong With You. Fantastic. Thank you. And it's really, really great to to talk to you today. I know that a number of people uh, with disabilities that I have talked to tell me that they spend a, a reasonable part of their life making their, if you like, their lived response to their condition because things are just harder and take more time. But often a lot of the barriers that people with disabilities I've talked to have have said that they face are not actually just from the disability. They are actually barriers that are shaped by people's response and the lack of accessibility. How has your experience been with that? What kind of challenges do you face that don't stem necessarily from the disability itself but from the interaction with those needless barriers. 
Yeah, as a wheelchair user, you know, I'm navigating my way in a world that is not designed for disability, mm-hmm. not designed with people in wheelchairs in mind. Um, often adaptions or modifications to building, uh, you know, retrofitted or built later on, um, which is not only more expensive, but often it's not done as well as if it was built into the design of mm. spaces. So for me and my disability, my main barrier is physical barriers and things like that. Um, but I think attitude barriers also is something that a lot of disabled people face in terms of it's not thought of in front of mind when it comes to yeah building things, mm. organising events and attitudes, for example, in the workplace, about employment, about education. So yeah, when it comes to disabled people, there's often two types of barriers. There's the attitude and there's the physical barriers. And I mean, not saying it's a competition, but Mm. a lot lot of other discriminated groups, it's more of an attitude barrier. So in a way, I feel like disabled people, um, the solution is... Is, is a bigger job, but in a sense, physical barriers are tangible and easy to mm. implement because, you know, building a ramp is easier than changing someone's attitude over five years, That's over right. their perception of disability. So for me, I guess... That's why my job is really important because it's just making disability more visible in the media and so making people consider what disabled people are facing and highlighting those issues mm. and bringing that, bringing that awareness. Yeah, great. Yeah, I want to come back to the question of visibility, especially in the church later on, but you've, you've identified yeah, two types of barriers, the, the, the barriers that are more physical and barriers that are more attitudinal. Um, and I can imagine that... For, for a lot of people, say, not being able to drive, lack of accessible buildings, or even an uneven pathway, and you're, you're in a wheelchair, is that something that you've, you've come across? And is, does, it make you, does it make you angry when, when that happens? <laughs> well, I guess there, I have to pick my battles, mm. in a sense. If I got angry over every time I was discriminated <laughs> or someone who wasn't meant to park to a mobility car park, I would be very angry all the time. So I guess my expectation, sadly, is very low. Um, if, if I keep it low, then I won't get annoyed every time I come across a barrier or a restaurant that doesn't have an accessible bathroom or um, you know, a changing room at a shopping mall that uses an accessible changing room as a storeroom and it's filled with boxes. Mm-hmm. Like That is a daily, daily occurrence right. for disabled people. Yeah. We're like not surprised by that anymore. So... Yeah, I think it's about um, putting my energy into where I know I can make a difference, and that's what I do in my job. Mm, right. Yes, I, I, just down the road here, and uh, our set of buildings here, there's a few um, disability car parks, and I came across one of them, which was just full of all the wheelie bin bins for, for the yeah. organisations. <laughs> I'm eye-rolling now, because I'm like, yeah, I've seen that all the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, and then the attitudinal barriers... What are some of those and what is what are the hardest that you, you have faced? Yeah, I think it's like the general maybe what from in my own experience is that disabled people have there's a low lowered expectation on them in life. I think, you know, when people find out that I work full time and I can drive a car, I think they try to not show it, but I can see they're kind of surprised. Yeah. Um, that, you know, I'm university educated and I've travelled overseas and things like that and I 
do acknowledge that is a privilege that I have as a disabled person because not everyone mm. has that same opportunity. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's just those little things of people who, you know, again, it's that visibility. They haven't come across good representation of disabled people in the media, which, you know, mm-hmm. obviously if impacts your own perception and experience of disability, whether, you know, even if you're not disabled. Yeah, and so I feel like, yeah, talking to people and sharing these stories is really important just to to highlight that disabled people have the ability to reach their potential, but it's just the supports mm. um, needed in place to make mm. that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, gosh, what you're saying is really close to my heart. In, in the disability space overseas, and in overseas development in particular, we also have that question of, of how do we represent people with disabilities or people just generally in poverty, say, in Africa. And, of course, there's always been that that issue of charities have sometimes represented them as having no hope in order to extract the dollar. And so it's a real challenge for us is as to how do we tell the story of how they have grasped what they can, taken advantage of perhaps what we can provide, but also then uh, effectively got self-determination really strongly into the picture. And um, you, can, you can also see how in, uh, in New Zealand, uh, yeah, people with disabilities are sometimes thought of as being someone as just a recipient of charity. And I know that in the disability space, there's this talk very much of the different types of models of disability. Do you want to say a few things about that? Yeah, so the one you mentioned is the charity model of disability, how disabilities are always takers of money, resources and, you know, need. And then we've got the social model of disability, which is what I tend to go towards that, you know, a person is disabled because of like the social environment and physical barriers rather than their actual impairment. So for example, the example that I usually give is, you know, I use a wheelchair, but I'm only disabled because there's stairs into the building and no alternative access. Whereas it's not because of my impairment. If there was a ramp or a lift, I wouldn't technically be disabled because I'd be able to enter the building. And then you've got the medical model, which is very focused on the actual impairment, the disability, and what makes that person physically different is what makes them disabled. So yeah, it's interesting kind of like balancing those different models of disability because all of them are valid. Like, you know, I technically do have a physical medical Mm. condition, which has resulted in a disability, and in a way, you know, I do need extra support and funding and resources to help me reach my potential, you know, achieve my goals and want to succeed in life. Um, and yes, yeah, social attitudes and barriers mm. do also make an impact. So all these models, are, you know, do exist and are valid. But I guess I can also choose what I focus on, not just in my own life, but in my work. Like I do a lot of stories around people who don't have enough funding for a lift or a mobility van or things like that. And I've had people say to me like, you know, please don't portray me as a charity case. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always clear like that's not my intention. I often want to focus on the systemic issue, which is leading to this lack of resource rather than putting it on the disabled person needing charity. So that is something I'm clear on. Like, it's a hard balance, though, because, you know, you do see so many give a little pages of people who desperately do need money and resources for things to help them live. Mm. And maybe the way some disabled people themselves or their family members portray that doesn't help that image. But like you said, money makes a difference. And if you need to, like, 
you know, if you're in a situation where you really do need to portray yourself as needing that money so you can get to school mm-hmm. or get to work, I can understand why people mm. would do that. Yeah, 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 exactly. It strikes me, one thing that strikes me about the models is, well, there's a couple of things. One of them is that where do we put the onus on what needs to happen, right? So the social model, it's basically saying, actually, if that building is not accessible, it's because we designed it that way. That's a society problem. It's a society not enabling someone with a disability to actually claim a human right. Um, and the other thing that is, really strikes me about the difference between these models is, is power. Um, so in the medical model, the, the question would come straight away, you know, can this be cured? Right. And then, of course, it's a doctor that would be making that kind of call. Um, whereas in the social model, it, and, and also um, within a social model, a human rights-based model, which basically says, um, no, uh, the power to make decisions about your own life should be, should be a human right. And that's equally the case for someone with a disability as someone without. And so uh, what are we doing making all these decisions for other people? It should be that... Um, I guess the, the phrase that's often used is nothing about us without us, right? The power should come from the people who, who, the people who are most affected, especially because they know much more about what they need than anyone else. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's why in government, you know, it's really important that we have these advisory groups and things like that and have that lived experience mm. at the forefront when decisions are made of, you know, within the medical system, the health system, the education system that would impact disabled people. But... I would argue advisory groups only go so far until they actually apply yeah. or take on that advice. Mm, yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm really keen to, to look at questions of theology and church. Uh, before I do, just acknowledge that we, we are here sitting, sitting here in the week of the Auckland storms in January 2023. And um, I have heard actually from my wife, who has been seconded to the emergency management centre, that they are, they have been taking calls, especially from local board, local board members, um, about people with disabilities who have been trapped in buildings and not able to get out. Is there much in the way of community advocacy and mapping of where dis- people with disabilities are in advance of? of tragedies like this or do you, do you know much of, of that? Yeah, I mean, in any natural disaster, you know, with climate change, mm. disabled people are always going to be disproportionately impacted. Yeah. So, yeah, having pre-plans in advance before a crisis, on Friday when the waters came, it was chaotic. Like, it came mm. in so fast, unexpectedly, it yeah. was going to, you know people's homes are going to flood at more than a meter high so in that situation you're surviving you can't plan how we're going to safely take this person out in that moment Mm -hmm, you know this has to be you know these things like that have to be planned Mm -hmm. in advance that's why we're talking about designing with disabled people in mind from the beginning not Mm. afterwards right so yeah i guess i do know that there are some uh, places where um, a lot of service providers really kicked into action in the last week in terms of making sure their most vulnerable Mm. people were uh, evacuated if needed be, were well looked after, we had welfare checks and things like that. So that kind of is a responsibility of the support providers. I know that for some people in the deaf community, they are registered as having, you know, text access to emergency lines um, because, you know, they don't do phone calls. 
and things like that. But even then, like, you know, I've heard of stories where the communication was not good. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, I have heard good and bad stories mm. <laughs> over the past yes, week. Sure. And some of them are still coming out now. Like, people have just been surviving the last few days and haven't really had time to even kind of have the energy to want to talk to me. And I totally respect that as well. Mm, sure. Yeah, I've heard good and bad stories too. And there's been questions over some, whether some of the evacuation centres are, are accessible. And, and I was really attuned to that because um, this is part of the core of CBM's work is to respond to emergencies overseas, but also to do that preparation. Um, because as you can imagine, and we've touched on this, uh, just it's, it's true here as, as it is over there. That um, So we had uh, the phone, what is it, the emergency alert that comes mm-hmm. really loud. But of course, if you were deaf, then uh, you wouldn't hear that. And um, on the other <laughs> side, if you have a disability that's a sensory disability such yes. as autism imagine being in the supermarket and all yeah. that blasting at the same time that is very stressful exactly so yeah. um yeah that's something someone mentioned to me yesterday i hadn't even thought of yes so our systems are designed for the majority yeah. and yeah. then there are always those on the on the edge mm. yeah so uh, quite a lot of cbm's work has been around um being able to to map the community of who is where but also um, you know, in a in an overseas situation, and it's, and I think it, I'm I'm pretty sure it was actually there would be cases in Auckland where this is the the case that it's fine to say evacuate now, but how do you through the water if there was a, a slip over a footpath, for example? And so this is this is very much the case, and I'm thinking of Fiji, Tonga, for example, when the the cyclones come through, where the possibility of someone with disability being left behind is very, very high. And even if they do get to an evacuation centre, if it's not accessible, they they can't get in. And so that's what a lot of the core of CBM's work is, not just trying to make these responses accessible, but also to do that pre-work around helping people to understand that that's the case. And so I wonder whether the floods in Auckland is a bit of an opportunity maybe to to highlight that sort of thing as well, of, mm. of what's, what are the kinds of responses and all the lessons learned that are going to be compiled. Let's not forget about the lessons learned about people with disabilities here. Yeah, and sadly this type of weather and storm is probably going to happen again. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's really important to take that mm. action for learnings and things like that. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Before I just get on to questions of church and theology, I'm, I'm interested in, we, we've talked about yeah, making people aware what would you say to people who just aren't aware or just not interested? People who might say, oh, not for me, I don't know anyone who's disabled. And, and, you know, when I think of my history in international development, before I joined CBM, we were involved in some great projects uh, in different international charities that I worked with. But in, in that time, to my shame, I never really understood or, or gave much thought to how much more difficult it would be for people with disabilities and whether they were actually being included. In fact, probably these projects picked the people that were more likely to or easier and also cheaper because it takes more money sometimes to make responses uh, that are accessible to people with disabilities. Looking back, I, we probably did actually increase that problem in many ways, even while we were helping people who were maybe more in the mainstream. And, and I, I've reflected on that quite a lot. And um, you, you mentioned that many times people with disabilities might be excluded from something, but not because someone has deliberately done it, just they, they haven't really thought. Because I, I was thinking, you know, my, my dad was an older dad, and I experienced him becoming more disabled as he 
grew up, but I didn't really think of, as I grew up, but I didn't really think of that as a disability at the time. But the more I thought about it, the more I realised it is. And so I suspect that people generally, even if they think they don't know anyone with disability, they almost certainly do. But also, most of us are going to end up with disabilities. So it's actually, you know, it, it should be a more mainstream issue than it, than it is. Have you come across, um, or what, what kind of stereotypes do you find from people who just aren't sort of aware of the issues? Have people responded in really negative ways, but also have people responded in positive ways when they've encountered you? Yeah, I think, um, like you said, with an ageing population, everyone's going to experience not necessarily a severe impairment, but some need of access, mm. whether it's TV captions for loss of hearing or, you know, needing step-free access into buildings or homes and things like that. And that's why universal access is like, it's universal, it's for everyone. Mm. Implementing it is mm. a positive thing for everyone. Not implementing it is is going to negatively impact everyone. Mm. So, like, it just makes sense. Yes. Um, so... And I guess for me, in terms of interactions with people and stereotypes, I feel like there has been quite a shift recently um, in terms of, I mean, me and my disabled friends, we joke a lot, like, all these weird interactions happen in the supermarket on the side of the street, and they (laughs) actually do. (laughs) So things like, um, you know, people kind of, like, staring or asking if you need help or kids kind of asking questions really loudly to their parents Mm. um you know what what happened to her oh that's a wheelchair or uh, can I help you or just people are like just going in to help you without asking so from that has kind of shifted to parents rather than like being like move out of the way of the lady or don't get in the way which I think negatively portrays disability Mm. to kids Mm. at a younger age because it means like stay away from them don't steer don't involve yourself with a disabled person whereas I'd much rather and I've had a few positive interactions where you know the kids will be looking and I'll just wave or smile and actually like start talking to them and the parents are actually encouraging them to ask me questions directly and I feel like that creates a really positive experience because I think parents are often a bit embarrassed that their kids are being rude but I don't see it as being rude I'm kind of educating them now so they're not doing that or being nosy when they're an adult Mm -hmm. Um, and in terms of you know other people assuming I need help in the supermarket or being pushed up a hill or that type of thing, rather than people gonna helping me straight away without asking, they'll approach me and be like, I know you look pretty, you look like you're doing an okay job, but I just wanted to ask if you need help. And sometimes I do need help and I'll take up mm, on that, sure. take up that offer. But um, yeah, it's kind of shifted from assuming I need help to actually assuming I'm okay, but they just want to know if I need help. Mm. And I'm, I mean, I'm always happy and I, I welcome people approaching me and asking if I need help because, you know, they do mean well. They're not doing it to be rude. So, yeah, I think that kind of has shifted a bit, I have noticed. Sure, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think the, there's a sense often of just discomfort. Something may not have come across before or doesn't, don't come across regularly. And I think also, and I want to talk about this from a the theological perspective, from, for Christians there's this sense of, you know, we we want the world to be perfect. We want, um, we want God's redemption to be everywhere and for everyone to be, uh, and, you know, I'll use the word healed. It was used in the Bible uh, a lot. And Jesus was, there are many, many stories of, of Jesus healing people with disabilities. And yet that, that it's not the case all the time, right? 
And so where do we put that discomfort? And it's and it's interesting because it's, that, that whole question is not just a, a question around people with disabilities. It's actually much more wide than that. But I think it gets quite a lot of sharpness when, when someone who doesn't necessarily um, have much interaction with someone with a disability does maybe meet someone with a disability. And if you go into that discomfort, just don't know what to do. And it's easier to pull away and then, as you say, pull your kids away. And I'm really interested in, you know, how do we, how do we challenge that? How do we move to be beyond that? And mm. where do we put that discomfort? Because it's, it's, it's part of life, but it's also, um, you know, I think that having the image of Jesus on the cross, someone with a broken body at the heart of our faith, gives us a place to, to deal with that and to hang conversations on. So, um, yeah, let's, let's look at that whole question of, of theology because in the Bible, of course, there's loads of reference to people mm. with disabilities. It's, it's quite striking. In the Old Testament, there's protections. Uh, there are characters in the Bible, Moses, St. Paul, who famously have different types of disabilities. And Jesus was especially drawn to people with disabilities. And yet at the same time, Almost all of those interactions that Jesus had were about healing. How does that sit with you? What is, has your experience of disability, what kind of impact has it had on spirituality and theology? I mean, I won't ask you, has it had an impact? Because of course it has, but it's been your life. But what is, how's your thinking about that? Yeah, so I grew up in church mm-hmm. and I had, yeah, a lot of interactions with regards to people wanting to pray for me for healing in church, at church events, and again, on the side of the street. I've had that. Um, and most disabled people, visibly disabled people, have had that as well. Often by, yeah, strangers, people who don't know their story, people who don't know their testimony, as we, you know, if I'm going to use Christian lingo. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and I think for me growing up it was hard. Like, I had people telling my parents they didn't have enough faith, and that's why I was mm. still disabled. Uh, which is really hard for them because even you know in the Bible when God is one of the interactions where he's healing a blind person, he makes it very clear mm-hmm. it's not because of a lack of faith mm. and that actually an experience of disability is to show God's glory. And I feel like that is really true in my life. The impact that I've been able to have because mm. of my disability has been much stronger than if I didn't have a disability in my, in, you know, in my space of work. So, yeah, it has been challenging at times, mostly because of the discomfort, not just for other people, but for me as well. Just having a stranger approach you, want to put their hands on you to pray for you, is very uncomfortable and, in my opinion, quite disrespectful, hmm. especially if they haven't even made the effort to ask you about your story, to ask permission to know you first. And the reality is, like, everyone needs prayer, not just disabled people. The thing in my life that I might need prayer for is probably not my disability. It'll be some other issue that I've been dealing course, with in life, yeah. you know? So I would say to people who have on their heart to want to pray for disabled people, like, I think that is really good, but also think about the why behind you want to do it. And mm. there's other ways to make a positive impact on disabled people than just kind of wanting to pray for them, mm-hmm. um, whether it's getting involved in organisations like CBM or, yeah, other. you know, there's a, a lot of great work that I think will make a better and more positive impact on disabled people than just 
trying to pray for them because mm. I often say like, yes, if I was healed, it would make my life a bit easier, but it wouldn't make it richer or more interesting mm. or more fun. Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, it's still, it's still a challenging thing. And often in these situations where people do want to pray for me, I often like pause, have a little chat to them first and be like, is there anything I can pray for you in response as well? And people are often really taken aback by that because they don't expect that. But that took me a long, long time to figure out how to deal with these scenarios because I was uncomfortable, other people are uncomfortable. So yeah, and I think having a disability again is, uh, God wouldn't have allowed me to be disabled. Because he's all powerful, he can he can do that, and it's not like he purposely let me be disabled. I think he allowed it, knowing the impact that I could make. Mm. Yeah, I, I I liked what you said about asking if you you can pray for for them as well, uh, because of course belonging and equality is is all about that. Getting to that point where uh, we are sharing in our common humanity, mm. and it's not the case that. Uh, one is somehow um, just in, in the charity model of giving and the other one receiving. Yeah, that's really that's really great. But you, you also, you've touched on that whole question of God giving you a disability. Is disability a mistake? Like some people, some people would, ha- would say, well, God doesn't make mistakes. On the other hand, the this, this source of this discomfort sort of suggests that actually we might have a, a, at least a background belief, maybe we're not conscious of it, that there's a mistake has happened here. Uh, and you said that you would there was a lot of richness that you might uh, lose if you didn't have your disability, or certainly that if you ha- didn't have a disability, it wouldn't be the case that your life is, is necessarily richer. And I've spoken to some people in the deaf community, and they they very much see themselves as a community and a, as a culture. And some have said that regaining their hearing would actually be a loss of their identity. Yeah, it's, it an, it's an interesting thing because, again, I come from a place where I was born with my disability, it's all mm. I've ever known whereas people do have accidents and spinal cord injuries yes. um, and gain a disability later on in life and I don't want to assume that these people are just as happy now as they were before because I do know a lot of people who gain a disability later on in life that is a massive life change and that is significant and that is a really difficult journey to go on. So I don't want to take away from that experience because a lot of people in that situation would want to walk again. And I respect that because that's their Mm. story and that's their journey. And I can imagine that's really, really difficult. So I guess, yeah, coming from my own perspective, it has added a lot more than it would have taken away. Um, but also, you I mean, we're talking about all the references to disability in the Bible. In a way, it's, I, I, I heard this from, from um, another disabled writer, and she referenced how Jesus was impaired and left impaired and scarred after his crucifixion. Mm. He could have been healed from his scars on mm-hmm. his hands after he was on the cross, but he didn't, and he used that as an example to show yes. glory to God. So in a way, that's kind of how... Well, yeah, when I heard that, I was like, oh my gosh, it really shifted the way I saw my mm. disability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I, I tend to think that being able to hold pain and suffering in everyone's life, for your own suffering, but also other people's, um, and whether, and like you say, for some, it may not necessarily be suffering, but for some people it, it is. Um, mm. To be able to hold that, I, I really deeply believe that's part of our spiritual transformation. 
for ourselves and for others to be able to look the reality of life in the face with all its joys and sadness, with all its brokenness, to feel the rawness of of all the emotions that go along with that and not turn away and to be in solidarity um, because we're all broken and that's, um, that's deeply, deeply part of our Christian theology. Yeah. Mm. And then um, in church, because you, you said there are, there are other ways than praying for people that, pe- that someone might be able to help. Um, I'm, I'm interested in just exploring that in church because I think, you know, to me, if, if churches aren't models of belonging, then mm. we're in trouble, right? Yeah, they I know so be. many church slogans. It's like a place to call home. Mm. But if you're not physically welcome or able to enter yes. the building, yeah. I wouldn't want to live in an inaccessible home. Exactly, yeah. So there's that phrase, um, a ramp is a, is a welcome mat. Mm. Um, so to me, there's, there's sort of two parts of that. Well, that's moving from exclusion to inclusion. Mm. But then there's moving from... From inclusion to true belonging mm-hmm. um, not necessarily the same kind of thing so I, I understand that uh, at least one in ten New Zealand families have a child with a disability but it raises a really interesting question to me why is that not more obvious in many churches why do many people with disabilities and their families uh, who otherwise might come maybe they're not showing up mm. um, well like most institutions or spaces they're designed for the majority Mm. you know Sunday school kids programs are designed for the majority so I would say that's probably the Mm. reason sure yeah yeah um my friend Mike who you also know um when he he came to my church once uh before I knew him actually and I always thought oh we have a ramp uh we're an accessible church but he sort of talked me through exactly how difficult it was with that specific pathway of getting into the church that uh, made it almost you know even though technically there was a ramp it made it much much more more difficult it's just not something that we we was the ramp around the back or side entrance by the rubbish bins yeah (laughs) (laughs) well it was honestly it was probably a little bit steeper than it should be Mm. but also it was at a door that um, unless that actually got neglected it was a Mm. door that we didn't usually use and so we would only really have it open if we knew we needed it and Um, and I remember, you know, as me walking up to that door when it's closed, you know, I, I feel like, oh, you know, I have to go all the way around the back. But of course, if I had got up there in a wheelchair, it would have been mm. um, 10 times as worse. So I guess this is the, the overall question, you know, how can we be part of busting the attitudes that we might unconsciously hold that erect those barriers, but also busting the, the physical barriers uh, in, in churches? Uh, what, what kind of practices or things that church church members, um, church building committees, etc., can mm. do, would you find helpful? And, of course, mm. that's from a mobility perspective, but also with people who may be deaf or, or blind, uh, it's a different set of issues. Yeah, what, what Yeah. well, I think there's that saying, like, a society is judged by how they care mm. for their most vulnerable. Absolutely. And if we're not prioritising the needs of disabled people mm. in church, yes. what really matters exactly. at the end of the day? Um, so... I guess, yeah, I would challenge churches to think about, again, it's really hard because I'm kind of coming from my perspective as a wheelchair user. Um, I don't use New Zealand Sign Language, I wish I could, or, you know, have other impairments. But, yeah, it's about prioritising the needs of people with disabilities and how you design your services, having, you know, the right spaces open, how Sunday school is like, 
and things like that. I mean, we talked about, you know, not just having the physical space, but people actually feeling a sense of belonging. Like if your connect group, you know, maybe the church building is accessible, but where your connect groups or Bible studies held, are they held at someone's house, which has five steps mm-hmm. to get into? If I'm a disabled person and I'm wanting to, you know, try out a new connect group and it doesn't give any indication if that person's home is accessible or not, I probably wouldn't go. And the onus is always yes. on the disabled person to figure this out. Yeah. Whereas churches need to be more proactive. Mm. Even just a line under the little church blurb which has said, we love Jesus, you know, to say like, this home is accessible, or, this home is not accessible, or that type of thing. So, mm. um, yeah, there needs to be a lot more thinking about how yeah. disabled people yes. can be, feel a right. sense of belonging. We love Jesus, and that's why we've made this place yeah, accessible. Yeah, exactly, yeah. you know. Yeah, and like mm. we've said before, like, the people that Jesus hung out with the most were mm-hmm. the marginalized, were mm. the outsiders, were the disabled people. So why aren't churches doing mm. that now? Mm. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and if you go through, pick any of the Gospels and uh, you know, write, down, write down all the interactions Jesus had with, with, with someone, and then in the next column, write down their socioeconomic status, and then the next column... Was it a good experience or a bad experience? And it's almost always those of low socioeconomic status ended up with a good experience of their encounter with Jesus. Those with a high socioeconomic yeah, exactly, experience usually exactly. got used as an example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so we've touched on the some of the um, we touched on some of the barriers that someone with disability might encounter in church. And it strikes me that if church is the you know it's it's a place where the gospel is proclaimed every week, but if you have a mobility disability, um, you may not be able to get there. If if you have a hearing disability, uh, then how will you hear that? If you have an intellectual impairment, the complexity of some sermons, right, um, could could be something that, that is, a, is a barrier. And yet I think, you know, for half the time with sermons, it would actually help everybody if they were simplified. <laughs> uh, so there are, there, are, there are those sort of things to, um, I think, to be thought through when we're moving from exclusion to inclusion but then when it's moving from inclusion to belonging you know it's not just to have people with disabilities there um, you know the right physical structures changes might do that but actually to belong is very much about being with not just doing for uh, and to belong you have to be missed right you have to be it has to be the case that if you're not there that it, people notice and would do something about so I think there's something really important about that. To me, the church will be, uh, you know, a redeemed space for people with disabilities where if they're not there, they're missed. And your friends will be outraged if there are things going on that mean you cannot participate. And you, you said that, that question of um, you being able to pray for others, to get to that really equal sharing space as an expectation. To me, that's, that would be a, a sign of a redeemed church. On the towering hillsides of Nepal, Dinesh was born with only one leg. He couldn't walk, run, play games or go to school. His loving family worried for his future. It doesn't have to be this way. For just $1 a day, you can transform a child's life. Call CBM Christian Blind Mission on 0800 772264 or visit cbmnz.org.nz. So I think for a lot of people who don't necessarily uh, encounter those with disabilities very often, 
and and want to want to do so, want to engage, and you know would like to understand. It would be really great to hear from you, Olivia, about the kinds of things that you wish they would know, they could know, and the kinds of things that they could maybe do. Um, because I think a lot of people would like to be positive, but without being shallow, they'd like to care, but without an in inverted commas, you know, pity. And they want to engage, perhaps, but without defining people by their disability. So there's, there's, for some people, there's, there's goodwill, but it's just a lack of awareness and lack of familiarity that maybe makes people unsure about how to act. So for those people, what do you wish non-disabled people knew about your life and experience? And what are the kinds of things that they might do? How can they find out more about how they might be part of, especially in churches, um, being more inclusive of people with disabilities? Mm, I guess the main, for my opinion, the main message is that disabled people with their disabilities still have the same hopes and dreams mm. and desires in life, just like everyone else, whether it's to attend church, get a job, buy a house, get married, have kids, become an actor, you know, be on TV or do whatever they want to do. But the world and the perception of disability is just not set up Hmm. for that to be a standard normal thing. So I guess, uh, yeah, my thing, what I'd say to non-disabled people is consume different types of stories and representations of disabled people, read books, listen to podcasts, and also like study up on something called the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons Mm. with Disabilities, which is a declaration that New Zealand has signed up for to follow, although I would say we're still quite far behind on fully Mm. implementing it in New Zealand. But basically it's a set of kind of guidelines about if we follow these rights, this is how disabled people's Mm. lives should look like in terms of equal access to education for children, um, being prioritised in things like natural disasters and, you know, equal opportunities for employment and housing and transport and um, the right to live in a world without violence and and things like that. So, um, but it is overwhelming and it is a lot. So I would ask people to take it one step at a time. Mm, Yes, absolutely. With With the Convention of the Rights of People with Disabilities, what we find in CBM when we work with the Pacific Disability Forum uh, in, in Fiji and across the, the Pacific is that we look at the preconditions of um, of those rights being met. So not only the, the physical structures that need to change, but also the, the stigma, the attitudes that need to change so that um, someone with a disability can live their fullest life. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, I think that's that's really crucial to... As Olivia said, to um, do some research, try to understand more about the issue, commit to break down some of the barriers in your church, maybe get together with a few people who, especially people with disabilities who you know, and just try to get to the bottom of how how you might change that. As well as, yeah, in, just investigating some of the, um, the issues faced by people with disabilities. And there are a number of support agencies in New Zealand as well out there, as well as organisations with CBM, like CBM, who are obviously focused on those overseas. And there's plenty of information on our, our website about the work we do. But also there are many New Zealand-based disability support organisations and organisations run by people with disabilities as and well. And I would also say, like, you know, good leadership within church 
um, means that non-disabled people also take responsibility. Often in these yes. situations, they put the onus on disabled people yep. to come up with their own solutions. And yes, disabled people's decisions and opinions should be at the forefront, but it takes leadership and guidance and actual action from non-disabled people and leadership to make an actual significant mm. difference. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Because we're called into a community that in the Bible is described very much as a body, right? So, yeah, that, that requires everyone's leadership. The body of Christ is is a broken body for, for all of us. It needs all the parts, but we're much more blessed, I think, when we can include each other, serve each other, receive back from each other. Uh, Olivia, thank you so much. It's just a real blessing for me. Every time I see you, I really enjoy conversation and uh, you have spoken to our staff as well and they very very much enjoy that and we wish you well especially in the the power of the work that you're doing to be a journalist focusing on disability issues I think there's there's an incredible need for that and I, I thank God that you're engaged in that so thank you thanks thank you for listening For more information about CBM, find us online at cbmnz.org.nz. For more great podcasts, go to baptist.nz slash podcasts.